Welcome to the Medical Mnemonist Podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, take a journey into the top techniques for medical mnemonics, study skills, board exam tips, and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. So today we have Dr. Ben White, an adjunct assistant professor at Texas A&M, neuroradiologist, and founder of the very popular BenWhite.com. Ben, how are you doing today? I am great. Thanks for having me. I've followed your material for a long time. I've used it a lot in the past, and we've kind of been discussing through email for a while, setting this up. So I'm glad we could finally sit down and and knock this out. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to start off with a lot of your blog resources for medical students. You've been doing this for a very long time. I think it's over 10 years now, we were saying. We'll get into that in a second. But you have a lot of resources on, or blog posts on recommended reading resources for each discipline, study techniques for each exam, just basically answering all of those questions that so many students have that they go to the forums and often get a lot of misinformation from. So your website is probably a lot better for that. Kind of curious, how do you go through the process of determining which resources are the best? Is it a personal preference? Is it a kind of a, what is your process? So it's evolved a little bit, but it all basically started with my experience as a first year back in 2008. So I've been writing since 2009. So it's been quite a while. And I started doing this because of what you described. I would, this is back in the the wild west days of the internet, (laughs) relatively speaking. And so I would, you know, talk to my friends or my upperclassmen and get lots of conflicting, you know, recommendations. I would go online and everything was on SDN. It was just anonymous forum posts. Everything was very kind of gunner centric. You know, people would give this advice and I just didn't feel like it resonated at all. It was just over the top. And so early on, a lot of it was kind of just me experimenting with everything out there, figuring out what worked for me, what worked out for my friends, my classmates. And then over time, as the internet kind of evolved, I also brought in kind of more a wire cutter-like method where I would look and find all the recommendations from everywhere else, right? All the forums, all the Amazon reviews, all the everything. And I can find, get a kind of a short list look at the table of contents, look through the books, look through the previews, you know, and so always going to get, be able to give people the, the practical approach, right? So there's always going to be more things that you can do. There's never a lack of resources. The question is finding something where you're going to be comfortable picking something and moving on. And so my goal has always been to give people a reasonable kind of short list, a reasonable option if you don't like the first choice, but just to be comfortable knowing that you're not going to miss out on magical facts if you don't use every single thing. No one has a monopoly on information. Very true. I went through so many resources. I think that was one of the biggest issues I had during med school was I tried to touch on almost everything I could find. And I was afraid that, oh, there'd be something special here or something special there. And there are going to be differences. But a lot of times that that's not important. It's better to master one resource than to get like a C-level knowledge in 10 resources. It's kind of how I describe yeah, it. Yeah, depth, not breadth. You know, I remember this happened a lot. And my teaching point for this would always been uh, the example in, I had a lot of friends who did the OBGYN, the OPGYN shelf exam, and they'd be trying to do the ACOG questions and New World and, you know, the, the case report series and all these different things. And they would get through like a portion of each of them and therefore had holes in all of them. And then they would just they are like say, you know, out of all the things I did worse on OBGYN, it was like, yeah, because you didn't do OBGYN, you did a potpourri of OBGYN. 
like it's better to master a single resource than it is to dabble in multiple ones. So again, while there is differences, you find something that, that works with your learning style, with your preferences. Obviously, if it's the best resource, but you hate it and you can't get through it, it isn't the best for you. But so once you find something that works for you, you have to master that resource before moving on to other things. You know, there's no point doing 14 Q banks halfway through. That is not the right approach. It's also very costly and expensive. But and so it's always about finding things that you're comfortable with and really making sure that you know them, you know, forward and backwards before you go around trying to just, you know, cursorily view through a bunch of different stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely guilty of that. <laughs> totally tried way too many things. We all are. I mean, I think one of the reasons that people always said step two was easier than step one back in the day wasn't because step two is actually easier. It was because the shelf exams were a forcing function to make sure that you actually did study all the stuff you know, in a kind of systematic way during your third year, where step one, everyone was doing a little bit of this, a little bit of Golion, a little bit of rapid review, a little bit of microbiology to make it simple. And then we get to the end of the you know, dedicated period and half of them hadn't even finished the QBank yet because back then U World was still like relatively newer. and. Yeah, that was obviously, you know, in hindsight, a huge mistake. People were dabbling in a bunch of different stuff. It was very easy to get scared. What are you studying? Oh, I'm doing rapid review. Oh, what are you studying? Oh, I'm doing doctors made some, you know, everyone's doing different things. Everyone's just super scared that they were missing out on the key resource to be well-prepared as opposed to just making sure they were well-prepared with one resource. And so now we, we all know that, you know, UWorld was like extremely important to do. And if you were dabbling a bunch of different books and you didn't get through UWorld, then you were making a mistake. But no one knew that when 2008, when I was a medical student, that was not universally accepted. And it seems like things have changed so much just with, well, we'll cover both the like more book resources and the banks, and then maybe videos at the end. But the books have changed a lot in the aspect that, for instance, BRS was very, very popular when I was going to school. And now I don't see anyone ever mention it really. I guess it's too simple. Maybe use it for school, but definitely not for the boards or something along those lines. And it seems like also that, well, maybe because of personal experience, I know a few authors that have been through this process where an, a large publishing company will purchase the book. And then sometimes they kind of will say, uh, put them on the shelf and don't really market them, kind of buy them to get rid of the competition. So we get this really sort of skewed view on what the best resources are out there anyway. I don't know if there's any good way to approach that as going to Amazon and looking at the ratings, for instance, might be one indicator, but how accurate is that going to be for you? I think it's interesting because what I saw with BRS and a couple of the other less popular series nowadays is that I think, like you're right, I think it has to do with the revision cycle. I think you know, case you know, some of these other case books, you know, every year there's a new edition, even if they're basically the same. You know, the cover looks sharper, it looks newer. You know, who's got the new book versus who went to half price books and got the old book. You knew that. And you look at BRS and be like, the, the most recent edition was you know four years old. And even though, practically speaking. In most fields, the number of questions that have actually changed material year to year, relatively low, very, very, very low. And the underlying core pathology, which you didn't know yet, is unchanged, right? The physiology is not really changing year to year. That being said, it, it gives us, I think, this veneer of out-of-dateness that makes it less good. I remember I was using the, um, the NMS surgery casebook, you know, the classic example. When I was a student back in doing surgery in 2010 you know, or 11 or whatever, that was the best book. It was only a couple of years old then. And it was a great book. It was kind of what you did uh, along with Pestana to really understand how surgeries were managed, how you dealt with patients. It was just a really great book. And then they didn't touch it for years. 
And now it's now it's been supplanted, right? And it's because, yeah, I mean, if they just kept it going and updated it and gave it a new cover a couple of years, it probably would have kept its its throne because it was an excellent book. It was still a great book, but it became, you know, at least visually out of date. And I think we are all susceptible to shininess, right? We want things to look good. We want to be up to date. We don't want to be buying old resources. And especially with the all kind of these new curriculum replacement, you know, platforms of all the you know combination video, QBank textbook websites now, I think we are under the impression that everything else that's really good is being constantly updated. So a book that hasn't been touched in years, how could it possibly be good? Yeah. You hear that argument with first aid every year. It's like, oh, you got the <laughs> old version? No, the, here's a new version. So much better. I'm like, how much has actually changed? Right. Like, there's, a whole new, <laughs> there's a whole new page of errata, right? Every, it's, every year is a whole new section of mistakes every year. And that brings up an, another interesting question because so UWorld has been the go-to for many, many years. And now there have always been competitors, but I would say some of the competitors are maybe of higher quality now, from my understanding. Uh, the two I hear the most about is Amboss and Board Vitals. And I haven't used Board Vitals. I used Amboss and did find that pretty useful and aesthetically much more pleasing when you're on the system. But I'm wondering, how do you go about assessing which one of these is the best for you? Because there's really no way to rate it without going through hundreds of questions on each system. Other than that, it's just speculation based on past students. I think a big part of it is when your school has a discount or gives it to you for free. I mean, truly, truly, right? So Amboss is a company from Europe. So they're a German company. So they were basically, from my understanding, the kind of U world of Europe. So then they broke into the American market. So I've actually spoken with people at Amboss before, and they were you know, in Germany when we spoke. Like They were all, all Germans who were in the platform. And so they have a very polished product because they are an established kind of powerhouse across the planet. Then you have places like Lecturio and you know, Online MedEd and all these other things. It's very difficult. You know, Boards Vitals, when I was a student, was new. And what happened was it was free. My school had bought a kind of group description. So it's like, if you have a free resource, that's one of the high quality ones. That's like, you know, legit. Like, yeah, why not use that? Because I, th- I think honestly, to a certain extent, you know, if you don't have a a strong preference after a trial period, then just do whatever is cheapest and then feel comfortable knowing that you're okay. You know, I think there are some differences in let's say electric quality in certain fields and subfields between the different platforms, but ultimately most of them do have, you know, an, a free trial or some kind of online free lesson. You can see if you find the animation style to be tedious, if you find the lectures to be not good. And if you hate it, don't do it. But if they, if you actually look at, you know, two or three platforms, you're like, I can't choose, they're all the same, then literally it does not matter. <laughs> just choose one and move on. And the agony you spend, time you waste kind of trialing them out forever is probably less useful than you would just do picking something and being comfortable with that and moving on. Because these are all you know, highly, pretty polished platforms. Now they're all growing. They're all changing every year. And like I said, I don't think any of them replace UWorld for a dedicated QBank, but they all have QBanks built in now. And so it gives you the chance to use one of those platforms kind of during the year and then save, quote unquote, save your world for dedicated or save it for closer to the time so that you uh, have a fresh exposure to those delightful, high yield, 14 page long questions that we're all so familiar with. Yeah, good points. And I definitely do hear a, a lot of more positive reviews from some of the others. I know before it seemed like it was pretty much you world and Kaplan were the two big guns for many years. And a lot of people didn't like Kaplan. There just seemed to be a lot of errors or at least the assumption that they were errors. It could have been the student was missing some information. But now with some of these newer ones, and I haven't tried them all, so I can't speak on them. It seems like there are more options and more affordable options, which is a big part because UWorld is just so expensive. 
that it's definitely beneficial for newer students, I'd say. Yeah. And I think it's also, you know, as more and more schools have kind of moved towards this, you know, optional lecture attendance kind of virtual format, the fact of the matter is your average medical school is not providing super great value, right? For the tuition costs. In a lot of cases, the mandatory classes are kind of in your way, unfortunately, right? In some cases, <laughs> because they're not very well done. A lot of the PBL stuff is really bad, not because PBL is bad, but because if you can't find a great lecturer, a single person, what are the odds you're going to find, you know, 20 small group leaders who can manage a group? Very, very low. And if your classmates aren't, you know, prepared for the lessons, then the one person who's done the reading is like leading it. And it's just very difficult. So I think with that, when you go, go to a school that has pass fill classes and the curriculum is already kind of lined up with the MBME curriculum anyway, at some point you're like, yeah, I could probably get a better education from some curriculum replacement platform like Amboss, and I'm going to get from my school. And that is, don't get me wrong, not a happy thought. It's a little bit depressing. But at the end of the day, it's probably true in a lot of cases that you're going to have more consistent educational product from a big company online than the kind of bespoke random classes you're going to get. You're going to have some good ones, some amazing ones, and probably some really terrible ones. I mean, I was taught biochem from somebody who did not speak English. I mean, literally does not speak English. Could not understand a single thing she said. Lovely person, very nice, talking about you know these really complicated esoteric topics. And I didn't learn a single thing in class. Not a single moment that I actually appreciate a single factoid that I could truly retain. So any platform that's going to give you a lecture that is observable and, and engageable is going to be better than what I got from that particular perspective. And I think that is not an uncommon reality for a lot of students now. Definitely agree. I actually that was an argument I made from basically the first semester of med school. I'm like, why am I here? Correspondence course, right? It'd be better that way. Just I'll be at home. I'll do all the stuff myself. And then I'll go ahead and take my step one. And then I'll go to the hospital and take care of people and we'll, it'll be all fine. <laughs> yeah. And it might've been from my you know past experience in education. A lot of my coursework was online. I did most of my undergrad online. I was doing a graduate program online while I was going to med school. And there are pros and cons to that, obviously, and it doesn't work for every kind of student. But I liked that variability and working at my own pace. And and when I went to med school, I thought initially that it was going to be, you know, this really high level institution. Well, maybe not the institution I went to specifically. I thought it was going to be a different caliber of lectures and instructors. And it turned out it was pretty much like every other school. You have good ones, you have bad ones, and it would be much better, in my opinion, to just kind of move a lot of this online and have you know, the best instructors of each category teaching on an online platform, and the students can sort of pick which ones they want to use. You know, The market is kind of moving that way to some degree, and it's sad that it took a pandemic for it to do that, because I think probably five years ago, I was saying my five to 10-year plan is to create the first online medical school. <laughs> And now I'm going to you know, get beaten to the punch, basically, because of the pandemic. So darn you, COVID. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think when people prepare for pre-med stuff and they're doing the MCAT prep and everything, you know, the MCAT is kind of leading you towards this idea of high-level problem solving, right? Of, I'm going to give you some, some data, and you have to know background information, but to answer the question correctly, it's not just facts. It's application, it's reasoning, it's especially in the verbal section, right? And then you get to you know, step one land and, and the basic sciences. And it's not about problem solving and thinking. I mean, obviously there is, you've got to think, but it's a lot more brute, for, for, brute forcible. It's a lot more about memorizing lots of facts. And yeah, physiology has relationships and ups and downs and whatnot, but on the whole, 
you could brute force the, the step one much more than you can brute force the MCAT. You really can just, if you sit down and learn a lot, a lot of facts and you get used to the question styles and the kind of ways they formulate the stuff, which is a very unique to the, the MBME stuff. I feel like, yeah, most people get to med school and they're like, this is not what I expected. You know, it's a lot less creative, it's a lot less thinking and a lot more just lots of information, just raw data to sift through. I think people were disappointed by that when they get there. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like you almost have to brute force step one, which is unfortunate because that's not my forte. I'm not good at that style of learning and memorization and probably why I did so poorly on step one as well. But sometimes I'll still go back and listen to some of the step one podcasts, like inside the boards or something along those lines. And I'm listening to the question saying, yeah, it's been years. I've never heard that again since step one. Like You don't need a good percentage of that. So if it was focused more on high-level knowledge and not high-level memorization, it'd probably be a better metric. And maybe that's why they made it pass-fail, finally. <laughs> I think so. I think when you think about it, you know, actual data is the least interesting part of what we do as physicians, because that is a part that is the easiest to replace with digital resources, you know, up to date, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So in the olden days, yes, being a walking book was part of being a doctor because you didn't have access to things. And because it took long to do research. Now that we have so many rubrics and metrics, we have so many different tools and algorithms for how we practice medicine. Obviously you have to know stuff. That's not what makes you good at what you do. What makes you good at what you do in a lot of cases is, you know, attention to detail, you know, patience, both you know, like with your patients and with yourself and with your colleagues and your teammates, you know, being able to communicate and get to the core of a story, right? The narrative of patient, that is not what you do at all for the first two years whatsoever. And step two, CK at least is a better metric in terms of testing the real important data that we use in everyday life. But, you know, Theoretically, steps 2CS would have been the best test. It's a terrible test, not a good test, but theoretically, getting at that, getting at how does someone actually, you know, deal with human beings? How do they incorporate, you know, verbal data into their own kind of mental model of what the patient is bringing to the table? How do they then synthesize that information into a narrative to tell other providers what's going on? That is the core of medical practice. And that part is like the fake test we took that everyone passed and hated, <laughs> you know, everything else was kind of just fluff. Yeah. It's like reading body language, verbal language, empathizing with the patients, all these things that actually have useful metrics in patient care are really glazed over. And then all of these knowledge-based things on minuscule data that you're never going to use, and there's no connection to better patient care that I'm aware of from a lot of the step one data has been the focus for so long. It's no wonder that a lot of people don't like going to the doctors. They're dealing with someone that more often than not probably has a lot of random useless knowledge, but never learned how to really communicate properly with the patient, or at least it takes them a long time to. When you think that everyone who ever took step two CS, myself included, you know, rolled their eyes about it because it was a terrible test, tells you exactly what you need to know, right? That we've all felt that the kind of soft skills of medicine are essentially the annoying part because uh, you can't test for them very well. They're subjective, right? They're subjective. Meanwhile, step you know, one and two are important, but it's like, that is because those are low-hanging fruit, right? It's because it's easy to have an objective, comparable metric. It's a convenience metric, right? And so that became the default. What made you good or bad at med school was if you were good or bad at this very narrow subset of medical knowledge, because it used to be a pass-fail exam that became a scored exam, which became 
part of the residency selection process. And once that happened, it became de, de facto all that mattered to med school. Everything that took you away from that was uh, you know, in the way of your goals of being an orthopedic surgeon or dermatologist or whatever. And so you know, if you did an ethics class your first year, you're like, why am I here? It's a waste of my time. And you, guess what? They're not wrong. The people who say that, you know, they're obviously not being very pleasant, but they aren't, technically speaking, wrong. If really your dreams are <laughs> based on a single metric, then everything is about the metric, right? And that's, what, and that's why we made it pass fail, I think, largely is because it has completely dominated medical education to the point now where people are prioritizing that, the, the score for you know, t- at least two years of their lives. And so everything else, even when you're a third year, right? So now it's the same problem. Sept2CK is still graded. It's become more important than ever. So now you're going to be on clinical clerkships and the patient care you're supposed to be learning how to do is going to get in the way of your step two CK score and all your self exams. And now you're gonna be like, I don't want to see that patient. I need to be studying for the shelf. LT again. <laughs> and, it's, it's, and still, you know, it's overpowered, right? So it's still a problem. I think the long-term plan is that step two CK will also be pass fail. I think, I think they just didn't want to do it all at once because it'd be such a big shock to the system for residency selection. So I think the goal is to do this pass fail for step one, give residency programs a few years to get a system in place where things are kind of stable and more holistic, and then pull the plug on step two CK two, make them all pass fail. And then the schools and programs, the students have to come together and figure out a way to make residency selection more humane and sustainable in a world where no one has grades and there are no numbers at all. <laughs> Maybe all these podcasts will mean that my past grades don't matter. <laughs> That's right. Everyone will have a podcast or an online platform or Instagram follower account. And then It'll just be influencer-based, right? Whoever's wearing figs yeah. gets to have the residency of dreams, right? Yeah, we were discussing that before hopping on the call here, and it is interesting, and I'd love to get some insight from more residency directors on how they're incorporating students' extracurriculars. If they're a social media influencer, if they have posted a blog on Kevin MD, if they have their own podcast, like how much do these things actually play a part in the residency selection process now that step one's going past fail? Maybe it's too early to, to guess, but if you have any thoughts on that, I'd be interested to hear your advice. I think it is pretty program specific. I think there actually are a lot of PDs out there who are very uh, into social media, who are very into it. I think there are- Probably a, podcasters themselves. <laughs> some of them probably, yeah. Um, <laughs> or at least you know people on TikTok or whatever, right? But so I, I do think there are people out there who are really interested in it, who find this stuff fascinating. I know when we do our um, reviews of, of applicants- I am always extremely interested in what they do outside of medicine because the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people with similar paper applications. And so it's not necessarily what you do in school that is going to make you stand out. It's what you do outside of school. And that may be school related, right? You can work in your you know, volunteer clinics and whatever, but sometimes it is the unusual projects. The things that are like, oh, that's unusual, which is, which is pretty cool. And I think it's very interesting. I do think social media is probably a double-edged sword, right? So I think if you did a lot of social media stuff and some of it may have been in poor taste, right? Then that might not be great. So there are probably some Instagram type people who are maybe a little bit sending the wrong message with their applications every once in a while. I think it's possible to do that, right? So and there's certainly people who have been residents or been medical students who have said things that are inappropriate social media, who have lost their jobs and lost their licenses for saying things that are inflammatory or you know evil or whatever. And so I think we all have to be cognizant of our online persona, period. But in terms of, you know, as a side hustle or an extracurricular, I think they are viable now. I think it is cool to do interesting things and to try to provide value for people around you. 
And arguably, some of those people probably should have lost their jobs and licenses. Yeah, I think, you know, the key with all the internet stuff, whether you're, you know, a blogger like I am, or you're, you know, on TikTok, whatever, is to, you know, be a force for good, right? (laughs) You know, add value to the world. So if all you're doing is taking pot shots at people, especially individuals, right? That's not helping anybody. You know, advocacy is not singling out single bad actors and telling everyone that they're terrible, right? That that's very much punching down in most cases. It's and if even if it's not, it's just toxic, right? You know, it's one thing to talk about medical establishment, right? Let's so to advocate for, you know, the AAMC or to advocate against NRMP for, you know, perceived slights and trying to make, you know, medical education better and more equitable and more fair. That's all great. So I think if you are, you know, an advocate for others, if you are trying to push educational content and sharing things and just being a generalized good supportive person, that's great because I think we all know, especially anyone who's been through clinicals, that especially in, in academia, there can be a lot of negativity. There's a lot of poo-pooing other fields, you know, oh, dumping this and dumb consults and all that kind of stuff. So every person who's like pleasant and putting a smile on people's faces is just so much more, so much nicer than the average person on social media. So I think it's great. And I think there are people out there who really do want to amplify um, more voices out there, especially for people who are represented. I think it's definitely in those people's best interest to be on social media and have a platform because people do want to amplify those voices. And it's just one more way that they can do it in a very easy kind of low friction way. No, you can't because the algorithms don't get enough likes and shares. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Facebook will bury that. Yeah. I think actually for that, Twitter is actually, I think, probably the best of the platform. But Twitter, Twitter itself is a dumpster fire, right? Twitter, it's terrible. Um, but med student medical you know, education Twitter, I think, is relatively speaking an island of decency. Um, so Facebook is awful. And mostly just you and your friends and your friends from high school, you know, talking about Trump or something like that. That's not, that's not healthy. I think the key with something on like Twitter is that if you're going to be on it uh, and you're going to be on it a lot is to really curate your feeds so that you're not just, you know, inundated with, with stuff. So I had to really tailor my feed down because it's just too much of a flood of stuff. And it was just depressing as hell. <laughs> yeah. As we start kind of getting to the end of this interview, I do want to ask just what are some of the highlights and main points or skills that you've developed in being in medical education for over 10 years and writing these blogs and doing the research you have and, and what feedback have you received? I think one of the things that I think people do not appreciate enough is the mental health and attitude aspect. I mean, burnout's very, very sexy in the literature right now. Everyone's talking about burnout, but it's really too late, right? My feeling is that when it comes to things, let's say like step one or step two and your, and your exams during school, is that people tend to get so wrapped up in their performance that it makes them unhappy. And so I think, you know, curating what I would call this kind of aura of focused nonchalance is the most important skill that I've seen and people benefit from is that when you're taking a test, it's not like, oh, if I don't do well, I'm not going to have my dreams be shattered. It's more like, you know, you come in there, you are who you are, you're going to do your best and be kind of dispassionate about the results when you're taking it, right? So when, because you're going to have questions, you're going to have things that happen to you in life during clerkships on exams where you're going to be like, I have no idea. I never heard of that before, right? Or the t- attending asks you a question and you're just blanks. And if you take those moments of uncertainty to heart, they just weigh you down and they have this additive effect until you feel like you don't have value anymore, that you don't have worth. And when I see students go through that, that is when they are at their lowest. And so it's never to tie your self-worth to your performance on any exam, 
on any interaction. You know, every day is a chance to do better. Every day you're, you can iterate on yourself. I think that is the most important lesson. I think everything else is great. I think it's always great to pick better resources, to study smarter, not harder, all that stuff. It's great. And I write about it all the time. Don't get me wrong. But I think the underlying thread that you can't escape is that if your self-worth and your identity is tied up in the results and not the process, you're, you're very fragile. You're, you're fragile to the world. And that is not a place you want to be. You want to be resilient. And that resiliency has to come from kind of unshakable self-worth. And that is, to me, the key. Uh, that is great. And yeah, I fall into that trap all the time. But how to get out of that is sometimes difficult. Uh, and I know we discussed a little before hopping on the call, this book that you've been working on and the trials and tribulations due to uh, all the recent changes with COVID and the exams changing. And maybe discuss a little bit about that and anything else that you're working on. So I've written a couple of books before this one. And the one that's relevant to most people is that I wrote a book about student loans, about medical student loans and how to manage them. It's basically a personal finance book for young doctors and medical students. So it's totally free. That book is free. And you can go to benway.com slash student loans and just read the whole text or download it. And that's basically something I, I wrote, especially for kind of fourth year students and residents, but anyone can benefit from it, that you kind of have the handle on basic personal finance and budgeting and the ins and outs of student loans. That book was a success. I'm really proud of it. It's out there. It's totally free. It's just a resource for people because, again, it's one of those things where people didn't have the answers when I was looking. And so here are the answers. And so after that, I was like, I'm going to write the book about medical school. I want to kind of summarize everything I've learned over the past you know, 12 years of writing online and write kind of a single kind of go-to guide of practical advice, not gunner advice, not fluffy stuff, just kind of a, what I kind of my website, but in, in book form. Uh, tailored down, edited, nicely, concise, everything. So I've been writing it for several years. And what happened was, of course, is that you know we had a tornado in Dallas where I live, and that caused some problems. And then we had COVID hit. We have had a daughter and a son, and who got busy. And then, of course, step one went pass fail. And then interviews went virtual. And then step two C has got canceled. And so all these chapters have been required to change. And so the book keeps getting less and less done over time as things change. Which is okay. It's the scope has changed a little bit too. I want to talk more about advocacy and more about kind of medical education and the all the acronym organizations that are part of that because I want people to kind of grow up in medicine and not lose that spark of distaste. If every student always wants to advocate and then graduate and then kind of forgets about it. <laughs> and so the book is called You May Hate Med School, and that's okay. And one day I hope it'll be finished, hopefully next year. It should be fun when it's out. That sounds awesome. I definitely want to check it out when it's out. Maybe have you back on the show to discuss it in a little more detail and what changes have happened. That's great. I, and I wanted to also state that your website is just, again, full of so much information. They can obviously contact you there. Is there any other way that they can reach you as well for more questions? Yeah. So they can go on the website. My email is ben at benwhite.com. And I'm on Twitter at benwhitemd. My DMs are open, so you can feel free to slip in those. Great. Dr. Ben White, benwhite.com. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, man. The Medical Mnemonist Podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, including USMLE tutoring and residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.